31% of the population that says they will never get the vaccine is choosing to get COVID. Recent polling found that nearly a third of Pennsylvanians who have not been vaccinated yet don't plan to get the shot. And registered Republicans are more hesitant than other groups. That's fueling new efforts to persuade conservatives to change their minds. Identify who's hesitant, what's the right message to reach those folks, and identify specifically who are the right people to deliver that message. We'll also get up to speed on the latest campaign attacks in Pittsburgh's upcoming mayoral race and look at why there might not be enough school buses to pick up Pittsburgh public school students returning to class next week. It's Friday, April 30th, and this is Pittsburgh Explainer. I'm your host, Liz Reed. First up, WITF reporter Brett Schultes is here to talk about a push to get more conservatives vaccinated. Hey, Brett. Hey, Liz. Walk me through the numbers here. How does hesitancy break down along party lines? So I looked at Muhlenberg College's April public health poll, and it indicated that just under a third of all people polled who haven't already gotten the vaccine say they don't plan to get the vaccine ever. Now, when you look at it through the lens of partisan affiliation, that number jumps up to just over 50 percent. That means half of all Republicans polled who haven't been vaccinated yet say that they don't plan to get the vaccine. That compares with, you know, 14 percent of Democrats and about 30 percent of people who identify as independents. Where is that vaccine hesitancy coming from? Well, vaccine hesitancy is complicated, public health experts tell us. And there are a lot of different reasons why a person is hesitant to get the vaccine. And vaccine hesitancy really does predate COVID as well. That said, when I talk to people like State Senator Ryan Ahmet, who's on the Bipartisan COVID-19 Vaccine Committee, he does help to characterize sort of vaccine hesitancy among conservative communities. And part of that, he says, has to do with misinformation that's online. Another part of that, he says, has to do with conservative mindset and sort of a inherent or long-standing distrust of government on a lot of fronts. So who's leading the charge on reaching out to conservatives and, and what strategies are they using? Well, again, I talked to State Senator Ryan Ahmet from my story, and he's one of the people who's helping in that effort. He really says that for conservatives, you know, the more they hear from the governor, the health department, the federal government, that's not necessarily the right approach. So what he's doing along with the health department and other people who are part of the COVID-19 task force is trying to find sort of trusted leaders on the local level. And this is something, by the way, that's really proven to work in with other groups as well. For example, um, you know, I, I recently produced a story with my colleague, uh, Anthony Orozco, about Latino communities communities and how it often is important to have the message coming from someone who's already trusted in the Latino community. Similarly, with conservatives, Ahmet says it's going to be someone like maybe a local pastor, a local business owner, a local pharmacist who is known in the community and who's lived there for a long time, or even just somebody who is a neighbor who either had COVID or lost someone to COVID or who just decided, you know, they got the vaccine, they are fine. They uh, are happy that they got the vaccine. And, you know, his hope is that the more we see people who have been vaccinated moving on with their lives and able to live with less fear of the pandemic, the more other people will jump on that and, uh, and see that it's safe. Are these efforts to reach out to conservatives, are these efforts working? 
or is it too early to tell? I think it's too early to tell because we've still had to deal with the initial wave of interest in getting the vaccine that sort of drove us to the point where we are right now. Uh, we have a vaccination rate in Pennsylvania of just above almost almost 50 percent now of people have gotten at least one vaccine. The further into it we go, the more that may slow down unless something is done about it. So I think it's a little bit too early to tell, uh, but it's going to be really crucial that we hit that key marker of 65, 70 percent if we really want to reach herd immunity and marginalize and, and virtually uh, eradicate the pandemic in, in Pennsylvania. You know, at the top of the show, we heard from UPMC infectious disease expert Dr. John Goldman saying basically that if you don't get the vaccine, you're choosing to get COVID. Like, is that hyperbolic or is that is that really what's going to happen? Well, Dr. Goldman has been working directly with people who have had COVID and who died from COVID in many cases over the past years. And I, he's certainly a an expert in this field. He says that the more infectious variants that are widespread now and that are really driving the spread are showing that it's a lot easier to get sick even if you're taking you know some precautions or even if you hadn't gotten sick earlier so i think that partly his comment is perhaps driven by a desire to get everybody vaccinated but uh, you know i think he's he's an expert so i i don't think that it's hyperbole for him to say that brett thanks so much for your reporting thanks liz we'll be right back after a quick break the WESA Vehicle Donation Program is a great way to support Pittsburgh's NPR news station. And if you're ready for a new car this spring, it can save you the aggravation of negotiating a trade in value on your old one. Cars, trucks, RVs, even trailers, motorcycles, and boats are accepted. Visit WESA.FM cars for the details. With just a few weeks until the primary, things are heating up in Pittsburgh's mayoral race between incumbent Bill Peduto and one of his challengers, Democratic State Representative Ed Ganey. WESA's Chris Potter is here to talk us through the latest. Hi, Chris. Hello, Liz. What's been going on this week? Well, I guess uh, for one thing, on Wednesday night, uh, WTAE Channel 4 held a debate uh, between all four of the candidates running for mayor. But as has happened before, the real drama is between Bill Peduto, the incumbent, the mayor, and uh, State Representative Ed Ganey, who sort of emerged and always been sort of the lead challenger here. For about 40 minutes or so, the debate proceeded as others have discussions of issues of racial equality, police reform, things like that. And then it sort of took a turn after Mr. Ganey uh, accused the mayor of basically breaking a promise uh, from back in 2013 when he was actually running to to take the mayor's office. And the accusation is that when Luke Ravenstahl in 2013 had sued UPMC challenging its property tax exemptions. Former mayor Luke Ravenstahl. Yeah, that Mr. Uh, Peduto would continue that lawsuit, that, that he had pledged that. Um, and of course, what happened in 2014 uh, is he dropped the suit and he explained at the time he didn't think there was much chance of success. Uh, litigation would be protracted and, and it wouldn't go anywhere. And a more collaborative approach, uh, he thought, would work better. That prompted uh, the mayor to say that that wasn't true. Um, in fact, it was. The mayor is quoted uh, in my reporting and others from back in 2013 saying he thought the lawsuit was a good step forward. Um, but he said that that wasn't true and that, and that Mr. Ganey was only really interested in pursuing the lawsuit himself, reviving that lawsuit, because he'd made a promise to SEIU Healthcare in exchange for their support. The mayor then also accused Mr. Ganey 
of uh, similar machinations in Harrisburg. Uh, he suggested that uh, Mr. Ganey had voted for $700 million in tax subsidies for the fossil fuel industry to secure support from the operating engineers, uh, a union whose members work in the industry, uh, and that contributed $100,000 to an outside spending group um, that's been spending money on Mr. Ganey's behalf attacking Mr. Peduto. So things got pretty heated. Mr. Ganey pointed out that Mr. Peduto has received um, support from some pro-fracking groups himself, although it's hard to make a case that um, Bill Beduto is in the back pocket of any frackers. He's been a pretty consistent critic of the fossil fuel industry in general, and fracking in particular, sometimes to his own peril. So, so the bottom line is things got rough on Wednesday night in a way that we really have not seen to date in this campaign before. Another aspect of the race you reported on this week was about campaign mailers sent widely to residents about Ganey voting with the former Republican House Speaker Mike Terzai, who's a pretty staunch conservative. What's going on there? What we've seen here, uh, what we're already seeing is these outside groups, the the union that Mr. Peduto mentioned, the operating engineers gave $100,000 to what's called an independent expenditure group um, that's supporting Ed Ganey. And these are groups we've seen at the national level. They can take unlimited contributions. There's no limits on what you can contribute. And as long as they don't coordinate directly with the campaigns, a lot of the rules don't apply to them. So Pittsburgh has campaign contribution limits, but these independent expenditure groups basically allow outsiders to drum up a heck of a lot of money and spend a lot of it. So what we've seen now, uh, Ed Ganey has one, it's called um, Justice for All, um, and it uh, it put up an ad, an online advertisement attacking Bill Peduto for not doing enough about issues of racial inequality. That was two weeks ago. And then what has happened since then is, is a similar group supporting Bill Peduto called Good Jobs Pittsburgh put out a mailer, as you say, attacking Ed Ganey. And the basis of that attack is that, you know, they say that there are several votes time and time again, I think is the language. Ed Ganey has voted alongside Mr. Terzai for measures opposed by the ACLU. So what's the truth here? The truth is that the mailer cites, uh, I think, four bills. And indeed, on those four bills, they were opposed by the ACLU. And Mr. Ganey and Mr. Terzai did indeed vote the same way. However, they weren't alone. Um, These were measures that had a lot to do with uh, what they call the victims' rights movement and with making it easier for people, for children and people with intellectual disabilities to testify outside of court in criminal proceedings. The ACLU is against that because they have concerns about uh, the rights of the accused. That's what they do. But these measures pass with like overwhelming support. I mean, we're talking margins of like, 190 to four in a state house that has 203 members. So yeah, did, did Ed Ganey vote alongside Mike Terzai on these issues? Yeah, but they were not alone. There was a lot of folks doing that because they, they were popular bills. One of them was signed by uh, Governor Wolf himself. So hard to make a case that, 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 there's a, you know, that, that this is some sort of Terzai-driven thing. Campaign mailers are obviously nothing new. This is a common election time tactic. Does the content of these mailers or the funding of these mailers tell you anything specifically about the state of this race? Yeah, I mean, this is really, there has been outside spending before. Um, Back in 2013, the aforementioned Luke Ravenstahl set up a political committee just to attack Bill Peduto, even though 
even though Ravenstall wasn't running because he didn't like Bill Peduto. Um, so Mailer said this before, but something like this, we've seen it at the national level, uh, where I think we're all used to these groups, but for them to kind of wade in on the local level, and these are, again, unions who already have plenty of ways of making their voices heard. You know, arguably it's concerning for that reason. It certainly circumvents much of the reason for coming up with uh, limiting campaign contributions to candidates. And, and I think tonally as well, they can change the race because a campaign can now say, look, don't blame me for those attacks. I'm not allowed to coordinate. The law says I can't coordinate it with these independent expenditures groups. So even if I don't like their message, I can't tell them to stop because that would violate the law. There's just not that same kind of accountability. Um, and in fact, this got this actually got Mr. Ganey in trouble because the independent group that supported him, the ad that they aired included footage of Tim Stevens, who's a long time, a well-known civil rights advocate and voting rights advocate for the black community. And he's in there for about two seconds. And he was really upset um, because he thought it made it look like he was endorsing Ed Ganey, and he's not. And, you know, there's not much the Ganey campaign can do about that because it's not them. It's this independent expenditure group. And so sometimes these things can be double-edged swords. Sometimes they take attacks that you as a candidate might not want to take. Um, but in any case, they can certainly course in a political debate. And as we saw in, uh, in the Wednesday night uh, WTAE debate, the, the candidates are perfectly capable of beating themselves over the head uh, when they need to and want to do that. Chris, thanks for your reporting. Thank you, Liz. Always good to talk to you. We'll be back with one more story after a quick break. For 50 years, NPR has brought you perspective on the news, the big picture, the crucial context. Public radio is also a place for perspectives you might not hear anywhere else. 50 years from now, when people are wondering what happened with the Minneapolis uprisings of 2020, they can literally come back to these boards and learn the entire history just from what's painted here. Listen to NPR and hear every voice. Hear every voice every day on Pittsburgh's NPR news station, 90.5 WESA. Pittsburgh Public Schools has been slowly bringing groups of students back to the classroom after more than a year of remote learning. Next week, another 10,000 students are slated to return. But a bus driver shortage means that some kids won't have a way to get there. WESA's Sarah Schneider reported on this this week and is here now. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Liz. So PPS has been planning a return to the classroom for months. Why is there a risk of a bus driver shortage now? Right. There's been a bus driver shortage for almost a decade. It feels like almost every school year I'm writing a story saying that the district can't find bus drivers, but definitely the pandemic exacerbated the issue. And Pittsburgh Public was out of school for 13 months. And so, you know, bus drivers quit or found other work during that time because drivers weren't getting paid. What my question is, is the district, you know, surveyed families and knew the transportation needs. And so as of March, they had sent out a survey and had gotten back and were planning how many seats were going to be needed. And I spoke with Megan Patton. She's the director of transportation for the district. And she said that the district has been in communication with its 20 companies that it contracts with every week, sometimes daily, um, since March of 2020. And then March 23rd, the district announced that students could come back May 3rd. All students would return. That's the remaining 10,000 students of PPS's 22,000. And at that time, knew that there weren't going to be enough drivers and did not communicate that. And as of now, I have not gotten a response back from the district. It's important to note that this is an ongoing situation and we're recording this at noon on Thursday. 
And I've asked the district, you know, why did you promise this to parents if you didn't have solutions? And I have not received a response. Megan Patton, the director of transportation, told me she was not the person to answer that question that um, the superintendent would, but I have not heard back from Pittsburgh Public. I did reach out to all 20 of the companies that the district contracts with, and a majority said that they did not want to comment on this story. Some, you know, had disconnected numbers, and I didn't connect with anyone on the phone. But I did hear from a couple managers of garages that the district contracts with who said, you know, the district has known this is a problem from day one. And also, the district has a contract with these companies so that these companies have to maintain their buses. They have to maintain the certification for drivers, and the district doesn't have to do that. So they were just on standby. And if the district needed them, they had to be ready. So they're spending thousands and thousands of dollars trying to make sure this is, you know, they're, they're going to be ready when the district calls on them and says, we're sending kids back. So I spoke with Mary Keaty. She is the manager of Ronick Garage, it's in McKees Rocks, and they have about 70 drivers, and they've lost 23 of their drivers, and she does not see them coming back, and she says she's been doing this work since the 80s, and they used to get three or four applications a day, but for the last 10 years, you know, it's maybe been three or four applications every three or four months, and she says the issue is this is a hard job to fill. It's part-time, and you have to really want to be a bus driver. <laughs> she says you have to love this work because it's the hours are not great. You don't always get benefits. And again, you know, it's really early and part-time work. So here's what she had to say about that. You know, and then they have to be able to pass the clearances and the drug tests, you know, and you have so many people that out of maybe 10 applicants, you might get one who passes all the clearances anymore. And then you try to get that person in for, for training and they found another job by the time you have them all cleared and ready to go, you know, that you can actually bring them in to train them they found other work because the process is so long. So Mary Key says, I don't see us hiring more by the time the district needs bus drivers. And she says this is going to be a problem into the next school year. Okay, so what is the school district doing to solve this problem? So it says it's recruiting. It's helping these companies um, find people. But as you know, you just heard from Mary Keaty, that's going to still be an issue. And Time is of the essence here. They're running short on it, and they're going to ramp up summer school programming as well, and they will need transportation for that. And again, I wish I had an answer, but I have not heard back from Pittsburgh Public, so I don't know what the long-term solution is. There was a last-minute solution presented at a school board meeting this week. The district is going to partner with the Pittsburgh Transportation Charter Group, which is a company that has charter buses and drivers who are certified and can drive school children. And so they are going to get three buses a week, and these are 30 passenger buses. Um, you know, the district still has a five to 600 student gap every day. So you do the math, you know, they could run multiple routes, but I don't know. They have not given me that information. They say they'll have more details to present on a Friday during a noon press conference. Parents and students have been waiting for over a year to go back to classrooms. What do they have to say about this? Parents are incredibly frustrated. You know, the district has had months to plan this, and there have been, you know, consistent complaints of lack of communication, lack of transparency from this district. And even with this temporary solution that I mentioned, the three 30-passenger buses a week, families won't know until the end of next week if that will be an option for their student. School starts on Monday, and so um, they have to figure out transportation for their children for the first week of school. Wow. So zooming out just a little bit. So if all these students go back to class on May 3rd, is this the last piece of the district's reopening plan? 
Yeah, the district says as of uh, May 3rd, every student will have the opportunity to return. Again, there are transportation issues and the district has some solutions for that, including uh, Port Authority vouchers, but that means, you know, a parent will, someone will have to ride with the student or, you know, your own private transportation. But yes, as of May 3rd, every student will have the opportunity to return. Now, we don't know what the plans are for the summer and the fall, the superintendent, Anthony Hamlet, will not commit to returning five days a week. So a new group has formed and they want the superintendent to commit to opening the schools in the fall five days a week. Um, right now, the superintendent has not committed to a plan and has not said if it will be this hybrid model that we're in now where students are only back two days a week or if it will be a full five. So look for more reporting on that. Sarah, thanks so much for your reporting. Yeah, thank you, Liz. That's the show for this week. Pittsburgh Explainer is produced by Katie Blackley. Our editor is Lucy Perkins. Thanks for listening. Let's talk next week.